the sour. The sour is perhaps moderately out of place among these pages, for it is not just one drink but many. In the same way that the original cocktail leads us to the old-fashioned, the martini, the Manhattan, the Sazerac, the Hanky Panky, the Negroni and countless others not listed herein, well the sour gave us the daiquiri, the clover club and the margarita. Not to mention the bramble, the sidecar, the white lady and the multitude of drinks that merely stick the suffix sour after their name, like the gin sour for example. People were mixing their booze with citrus juice long before the birth of the cocktail. Punch was invented as a way of turning distilled spirits into something more akin to wine or beer in terms of strength and palatability for British sailors in the 1600s. They'd add citrus juice to bring acidity, they'd sweeten it to balance the tightness of that and then weaken the whole by adding water or some such. It was a convenient way to make a tasty drink out of readily available ingredients once you'd run out of wine and beer. It soon became a lot more than that, of course, but this book is not a history of the punch. Suffice to say that many consider the sour to merely be a single serving of punch, and so too Collins's, Fix's, Cobbler's, Daisy's and Cooler's, what the omniscient Wundrich calls the children of punch. Whilst we can see the dye had been cast for the sour a long time ago, it wasn't until the 1850s that we first see it adopt that name. The earliest yet discovered reference to a sour being served is the brandy sour listed on an obscure 1856 menu for Mart Ackerman's Saloon in Toronto, Canada, a menu which had presumably lain long forgotten in the New York Public Library until the collection was digitized and put online, whereupon its relevance was spotted. Though newspapers had mentioned the sour in passing a couple of years previously to this, it was done in such a way that the drink must have been familiar to the readers. Alongside the burgeoning popularity of the cocktail that was taking place at the same time, so too did the sour's appreciation spread and grow. The zeitgeist capturing Jerry Thomas Bartender's Guide of 1862 listed recipes for brandy, gin and Santa Cruz or rum sours, alongside their close relatives the Fix, which at first glance was differentiated only by the adornment with seasonal fruits. The recipes for all the fixes and sours list the sour ingredient in each as being a quarter of a lemon. Elsewhere in the same book we can find dozens of recipes that call specifically for lemon juice, so we do know that it doesn't mean that. In the fix, the lemon appears to be offering the same amount of influence as, say, a slice of lemon does in a glass of Coca-Cola. It's just floating in the drink. In the sour, 
there is the instruction that the pieces of lemon or the piece of lemon must be pressed in the glass. The other ingredients being the spirit, sugar, and enough water to dissolve the sugar in, alongside shaved ice. So the fix was essentially a sweetened spirit served on shaved ice or crushed ice, as we'd probably say today, with a wedge of lemon floating in it, and uh, Carmen Miranda-esque fruit adornment. The sour, on the other hand, followed the same formula, but dispensed with all the superfluous fruits and instead dialed up the influence of the lemon. In the same way that the brandy gave way to whiskey in the cocktail, so it did too in the sour. An early 1870 mention for a whiskey sour appeared in the Wachowsia Plain Dealer newspaper. Again, it was mentioned with such offhand familiarity that it must have been a popular drink by that time. And it is perhaps the whiskey sour that really cemented the sour's place most firmly in the hearts of America's drinkers in the second half of the 19th century. One surefire way of knowing that a drink has arrived is when the glass that it is served in acquires the name of the drink. In his 1884 barkeeper's handbook, George Winter specifies the use of a fancy sour glass for, well, at least some of his sours. The sour glass of this era was a, a footed vessel, somewhat deeper than a cocktail glass, but likely not in possession of its long stem. And the drink would be shaken with ice, but served straight up without ice. The sour glass of modernity is perhaps closer to being an oversized cocktail glass than it is to this. And for a period in the early part of the 20th century, the sour glass was closer in style to a small tumbler with either straight or flared sides and was sometimes known by its alter ego, the Delmonico. The inevitable march of time saw the sour evolve. And of course, it did go forth and multiply, and its offspring were many and varied, as discussed in the opening paragraph. But when called simply a sour, it rarely strayed too far from its established formula. Aside from the vessel it arrived in, and whether it was being served up or on the rocks, the only three big changes really came when people started experimenting with different base alcohols, when people started adding egg white to the drink, and when people started adding red wine to the drink. Let's take this in reverse order. The New York Sour is a visually striking version of the Whiskey Sour, with an attractive carmine layer sandwiched between its xanthus body and its fluffy white head. Contrary to the name, it likely originated in Chicago, not New York, sometime around the beginning of the 1880s. Recipes from the period invariably call for claret, but don't be fooled into thinking that they were using fine Bordeaux, as claret was a commonly used synonym for red wine in the 19th century America. It must be said that one's mind does wonder quite how this innovation came about. 
until I tried this drink, I never found myself sipping a whiskey sour and saying, you know what this is missing is red wine. <laughs> the Chicago bartender who back in 1883 took credit for the creation of this drink explained, the claret makes the drink look well and it gives it a better taste. And you know what? He's not wrong. As for the egg white, there is a recipe for a frosted sour in Patsy McDonough's 1883 Barkeeper's Guide and Gentleman's Sideboard Companion, which is a bourbon sour with egg white and a sugar-frosted rim. And Robert Vermeer's quite excellent cocktails, How to Mix Them from 1922, contains the advice, a few drops of egg white improves all sours. But it was by no means the norm at that stage. Even in 1934, when noting for a pleasing variation at about the quarter of the white of an egg, William T. Cocktail Bill Boothby was still something of an outlier. Not that egg whites weren't being used in other drinks in this era. The Clover Club, for instance, had an egg white in it from birth in 1901, as it seems did the missionary sours that went to conquer the New World, the Pisco Sour, arrived in 1903, likewise spotting its egg-white frothed head from infancy. But in the cocktail heartlands, the only time you were likely to find an egg in your sour is if you ordered the seductively named Egg Sour, which featured a whole egg, yolk and all. It's hard to say exactly when the egg-white became the norm rather than the exception. Even as late as the 1960s, the United Kingdom Bartender's Guild Guide mentions only that egg white improves the drink and notes it is not an element in the original. It is an irony that in the modern era, it is easier to access and quickly search the oldest, rarest and most valuable cocktail books from the 19th and early 20th century than it is to find those from the more recent so-called dark days of the cocktail, which I approximately estimate covers the period between about 1970 and 1995. It would seem likely that it was during this period that egg white became a preferred element in the sour. This would also overlap with the period when liqueur-led sours like the Amaretto and Midori sour became popular, with the Amaretto sour rearing its head in 1974 and the Midori Sour around four years later in 1978. Both of them seemingly invented to promote the then new liqueurs. There is something interminably naff about liqueur-led drinks. I suppose serious drinkers consider the relatively high sugar content and the relatively low alcohol content of most liqueurs to render them not worthy of their respect. One feels it is a shame that the modern world has forgotten how to drink liqueurs. It used to be that they were enjoyed on their own in a small liqueur glass, but these days they seem to be considered by the bartender only as a cocktail ingredient. A little glass of cherry brandy or creme de banana is a splendid indulgence, and shaking them with lemon juice and egg white also creates many wondrous drinks. However, when this type of drink arrived in the 1970s, chances are they were shaken with sour mix, not fresh lemon juice, 
which does create a substandard mix. Maybe that's why we're still sneering at them today. But since sour mix is now largely consigned to the drip tray of history, one feels that it is high time we stopped demonizing the liqueur lead sour. Sour mix is or was a, a green or yellow powder, usually containing sugar, citric acid, maybe some kind of flavoring, and latterly some kind of firming agent. It was mixed with water and decanted into a bottle or a plastic store and pour, and the bartender just had to mix it with their chosen spirit or liqueur, shake it and serve. It was simple but revolting. But maybe sour mix played a role in the popularizing of egg white as an ingredient in the sour. Heaven knows a sour mix sour needed all the help it could get to be transformed into something drinkable, and the egg white would have bought some much-needed texture. And the texture is important in the sour. Elsewhere in this book, I chide the bartenders of antiquity for their predilection towards using powdered sugar in their drinks. As I say, sugar's resolute unwillingness to fully dissolve in alcohol is, you'll recall, what led to the old-fashioned drinker of the 19th century being forced to carry a spoon around with them in order to finish their drink. But in a sour, that lack of solubility can be a virtue rather than a sin. The sherbety vivaciousness of a sour prepared with fresh lemon juice and superfine sugar is a step up indeed from one made with sugar syrup and is a world apart from one made with sour mix. In the modern era, opinions on the sour are divided and there is little continuity to the family. Be it a whiskey, gin, amaretto, midori or whatever sour, unless you specify your preference, it is entirely uncertain whether the drink will arrive in a rocks glass, a cocktail glass, whether it will have egg white or not, if it will be served up or on the rocks, whether it will find itself liberally dosed with aromatic bitters or have no bitters at all. And as to the garnish, well, let's just say the uncertainty continues there as well. Whilst one generally errs towards tradition when it comes to cocktailian preferences, on the sour I must agree with Robert Vermeer, Patsy Madonna and cocktail Bill Boothby. The egg white certainly does improve the drink. Not too much, mind. There seems to be a belief among some bartenders that each egg contains enough white for one sour, but that is very much not the case. I should think 12.5 milliliters of egg white to be ample for a properly shaken, regularly proportioned sour. I once worked alongside a bartender who refused to make sours, or any egg drinks for that matter. He couldn't look at the goopy, translucent coalescence without gagging, much less actually separating the egg white from the egg yolk, or the egg yellows as I prefer to call them. And I suppose therein lies part of the problem with eggs in drinks. People are scared they're going to get something that has the consistency of an oyster, which of course, if the drink is probably shaken, they're not. Some too are afraid of contracting salmonella, though these days that is an extraordinarily small risk. America's Food and Drug Administration estimating something like one in 40,000 eggs to be contaminated in their country, um, which is, 
a lot of whiskey sours. And in the United Kingdom, the Food Standards Agency stated in 2017, the risk of salmonella is now so low, you needn't worry. However, it is a matter of personal choice. Some people avoid eggs for dietary or ethical reasons, and some people are allergic to eggs. So it is always wise to list them as an ingredient on your menu descriptions for your sours, or to inform your guest when you intend to use one. Some notes on mixing sours. It is more of a personal rule than one universally practiced, but there is something one finds unpleasant about shaken egg whites being served on ice. So as a general preference, I tend to serve sours that contain egg whites straight up in a stem glass, and those that don't on the rocks in a rocks glass, but that's just me. When it comes to garnishing a sour, with the possible exception of the gin sour and the pisco sour, I generally think that you can't go too far wrong with one of Lazzaroni's delicious amaretto-infused cherries. Many of you reading this will, I'm sure, have your own opinion on the best way to shake a sour. If one wishes to convert the egg white into a fluffy white spume, personally, I favor the so-called whip shake, whereby one shakes the drink only once, but harder and longer than usual, and with a very minimum of ice cubes, exactly three being my rule. I find it ultimately to be more effective, tidier, and less time-consuming than the misleadingly named dry shake, where one first shakes the junk without ice and then again with ice, or the increasingly popular reverse dry shake, which one hopes needs no explanation. For our then recipe in this book, we have used the recipe from Jerry Thomas's 1862 Bartender's Guide. The more astute amongst you will notice that it's incorrectly garnished in the illustration. This was due more to my own flaws and the fact that we shot the drinks before we'd finished writing the book than it is to any subtle slight on Thomas's recipe. Our modern interpretation of the sour comes courtesy of the thinking woman's crumpet, Mr. Jeffrey Morgenthaler of Portland, Oregon, these days more famous for his chocolate chip cookies than his drinks, but a fine bartender and a good man nonetheless. Jeffrey splits the base between whiskey and amaretto in this drink, and I've yet to serve one to anyone who wasn't completely delighted by it. 